0: The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. We, um, we get to be back uh, now in our Matthew series. It's good to be back in the pulpit with you all. I'm particularly excited today as we look at one of the most significant passages in the Gospel of Matthew— um, for any of you who know me, you know that I love a good renovation. When I walk into a room in need of a facelift, I can see what it could be, and that's very exciting for me. I could see beyond the clutter or chipped paint or old carpet, and I could see what you know it used to be or what it could become. One particularly exciting aspect of renovations, especially in old buildings, is when you find something, when something's uncovered as you're tearing down walls or or removing old floors. And so I like reading news stories of these kinds of things. You know, they tear up the floor and they find some old ancient tile underneath or there's an old fresco back behind something. Just this week, I, I saw a story of a couple who was, they were doing work in their living room and they tore down this old structure that had been built in front of a fireplace and what was behind it was this gorgeous Victorian fireplace mantle that was made out of these blue iridescent tiles and it was ornately structured with this, this, Beautiful, gold, um, kind of center, centerpiece flume area. I don't know why anyone thought they should cover that up, but it's very exciting to uncover that. That same excitement lies behind things like Antiques Roadshow, Storage Wars, all those kinds of shows. What we thought was trash turns out to be treasure. We love discovery, discoveries like this. We love transformations. It's exciting to see beyond what we initially thought, and to see something magnificent. And that is exactly what we experience in our passage this morning. So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 17. This is popularly known as the Mount of Transfiguration, or the Transfiguration of Jesus Christ. In it, several of Jesus' disciples, and conversely us, Get to see beyond the temporal appearance of Christ. See beyond just the human exterior and peer into the glorious riches that His being contains. We're told in the book of Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, He wouldn't be anything noteworthy on the outside. Isaiah says of the coming Messiah, He had no former majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus was born to two unknown working class people in a small town and an occupied nation in a small corner of the globe. We're given nods in Scripture when someone was beautiful to look at. We're told Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, they were all very good-looking. Joseph, Moses, Saul, David, they had strong, beautiful eyes, strong men, beautiful, handsome appearances. We're not given any kind of description like that of Jesus. From what Isaiah tells us, he was average at best and may have even veered on the unattractive. Yes, he worked miracles, yes, he spoke glorious things, but our eyes often crave delights that they can take in. As much as we rightfully remind one another that beauty is only skin deep, we still so often judge based on the outside appearance and on beauty. Studies have shown that objectively beautiful people are deemed more trustworthy and and tend to collect more followers based on nothing else besides how they look. This was not Jesus. Jesus was not the dashing, blue-eyed, flowing-haired man so popular in Western depictions. He wouldn't have been the guy that you would have immediately thought, he's the one I want to go get to know. However, as our passage reminds us this morning, things are not always what they seem. Like the hidden gem on the Antiques Roadshow or that ornate Victorian fireplace hidden behind the plaster wall, there's a glory and a majesty and a splendor to Jesus Christ that its humanity veils, and for those who have eyes to see, we can see beyond the humanity of Christ to the majesty of his being. And in this moment here in chapter 17 that we are about to read, Jesus helps his disciples to do just that. But not just with their hearts, but with their eyes too. He allows them to peer into his glory that they might be strengthened in their hearts and that we might gain more of Christ as well. So we're going to read now. Uh, we're going to read in chapter 17, but I'm actually going to start us in chapter 16, verses, uh, starting at verse 27, because there is a, a tie there. But let me pray before we read. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would help our hearts, our minds to see the truth. Help us to marvel at who Jesus Christ is. Help us to, to hold together in our hearts and our minds the various aspects of his being, Father, we thank you that you are glorious and transcendent and far above, but we thank you that you have condescended through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might know you. Help us to know you this morning. Help us to better understand who you are and who your Son is. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, 1627. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. On New Year's Eve, we looked at Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, a turning point in the book of Matthew. Peter and the disciples had finally come to the understanding that Jesus was the one that the Scriptures were pointing towards all this time, the Messiah to come. But the very next passage revealed that they still didn't get the fullness of what that meant. When Jesus shared with them that the path of the Messiah was one of suffering and death, the disciples balked. Peter, we are told, actually rebuked Jesus and told him it must not be so. Clearly, this shows that Peter didn't yet understand what Jesus came to do, but the fact that Peter rebuked Jesus also shows he still did not understand who he was talking to. Well, here in the Transfiguration, Jesus graciously continues to help the disciples grasp not only the reality of his mission, that he must suffer and die, but he also pulls back the curtain to help them understand just who he is. And he does this to strengthen their faith for what lies ahead and to increase and build their trust in him the transfiguration was a moment of assistance for the disciples in building their faith the moment of glory for christ is not fundamentally for him this narrative is clearly structured around the benefit that this experience was for the disciples That's massively significant and important for us to grasp. That means that this moment is designed for us as well. While Jesus first orchestrated this for Peter, James, and John, as verse 1 says, his seemingly closest three disciples that we see throughout the Scriptures— It's clear later in the passage that he intends for this story to be shared at the right time with us as well. This is here to help us. This is here to help us to see that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, one with God himself sharing in his eternal glory. The disciples still wouldn't grasp that. But this moment proclaims that the Son of God, the Son of Man, He's not just a prophet, He is God incarnate, which obviously has massive implications for them and for us. So we're going to work under two larger headings this morning to hopefully help us grow in our affection for the Lord. First, we must know Christ to know God, and second, we must listen to Christ to love God. So we've got to know Christ to know God. We've got to listen to Christ to love God. So first, we must know Christ to know God. Part of the reason the disciples couldn't comprehend that the Messiah would suffer was because they had a low view of who the Messiah was. In their mind, the most glorious thing the Messiah could do is reign victorious on the earth and defeat Israel's political enemies. But Jesus shows them the mission and the nature of the Messiah are much more glorious than what they realize. And to fully understand what's being revealed to us here, we need to start with a little background knowledge, particularly around the Son of Man. I picked up verses 27 and 28 at the end of 16 because they are tied into this section. There Jesus says, The Son of Man was going to come with his angels and bring judgment in the glory of the Father, that there were some standing there who who would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Son of Man was Jesus' preferred self-title. This title, no doubt, is an allusion to the Son of Man pictured and mentioned in the book of Daniel. This section here in this passage is definitely allusion to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, if you know it, for all of its confusing bits of prophetic, apocalyptic imagery and prophecy has, very, has a very clear message that God sits on the throne of all things. He is the ruler over all, and all other rulers, good or bad, bow to his will. And in this book about the absolute sovereignty of God, we get a series of visions, and we see that there is one coming, one like the son of a man, the son of man, another name in the scriptures for just human, one like the son of man, who would be unlike anything before him, Daniel records There was a ruler coming who would come on the clouds of heaven, a description often used of God in the Scriptures. He'd be like, the son, like a son of man. There, there would be something different about him. He isn't just a son of man, but he's like a son of man, and he would come and have a rule and reign described of him that could only belong to God himself. Jesus is trying to call to mind these scriptures that they know so that they can see beyond the immediate and peer into the magnificent. Though Jesus just told his disciples that he was going to suffer and die, he also is very quickly reminding them that there is much more to be told. The end of the story is not humiliation. The end of the story for the Son of Man is not death. He would come in glory and bring with him the kingdom of God. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this transfiguration is recorded and in all three it follows immediately after these words of Jesus about some standing there who would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom Matthew uses a time marker, which he doesn't normally use, linking these two events together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tie the prophecy and the transfiguration together because the transfiguration is part of the fulfillment of this prophecy, that some would see the Son of Man coming in his glory. This is not in full. Remember the mountain ranges we've talked about of prophecy? But it was in part His glory coming. These three, Peter, James, and John, were about to see the Son of Man coming in his glory, bringing the kingdom. Not just a foretaste and future glimpse. This isn't just saying I am coming in glory, but it's a revelation of that which is already taking place. For as normal as Jesus looked, there was much more to him. And while great miracles and wonders were happening, Around them through Christ, great prophets had worked miracles before. But no, this moment helps the disciples see there is a glory here unlike any other. There's a work going on here unlike any that the world has ever seen. The Son of Man had come. He was coming and would come into the world, bringing the kingdom of God. In this moment, as they saw the face of Jesus Christ shine like the sun and his clothes become white as light, they saw partial fulfillment of that vision of Daniel. This was the Son of Man indeed. He was coming in his glory. He's bringing the kingdom, setting up his eternal reign. But this vision does more than just tell us about the Messiah, the vision of Daniel. And Jesus uses it along with the Son of Man language. Him using it that way should help us grasp further the depth of his nature. Remember, it isn't just a Son of Man. He's one like a Son of Man. There's something more to him than just humanity. As Jesus is transfigured, And as God declares over him yet again, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's helping us see beyond the humanity, which is real. Jesus was fully human, but he helps us see beyond the humanity to the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that this is not just another moment of God showing up in glory like he did to Moses, uh, David, and, and others Well, there's some fundamental differences here than anything else that had taken place before. First, let's consider the shining like the sun business that we get here. We've seen another person in the scriptures glow. Moses encountered the glory of God. In a burning bush, Moses asked to see the glory of God and so God hid him in the cleft of a rock to shield him and even then Moses was only able to glimpse at the backside of God's glory as it passed by. But even just that experience when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. He put a veil over it because it freaked everybody out. He had this radioactive afterglow from the glory of God. But that's not what's happening here. This is not about some experience that Jesus had with God. This is about an experience that the disciples had with Jesus. Jesus didn't experience the radiance of God. He himself was the expression of it. He was transfigured before them. That means he wasn't glowing like Moses because he encountered the glory of God. He himself was the display of the radiance of the glory of God. Something that no human being ever recorded in the scriptures claimed to be or encountered Moses and Elijah even here. They're not radiating. It's only Jesus. The writer of Hebrews captures this when he says, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we see the moon rise at night and shine out before us, what we're seeing is the sun's reflection off of the moon. We could stare at the moon just fine. Moses' face shone like the moon. Didn't have a glory of its own, but it was showing off the glory of another. When the sun rises in the sky, we can't look straight at it. Its light is too magnificent for us. It radiates of its own glory. When Jesus shone forth, he was not shining like the moon, he was shining like the sun. His glory is God's glory, and their glory is one and the same. God shows his glory through God the Father, shows his glory through God the Son. Not meaning that the Son is somehow an accessory that God uses, but rather the Son is how God triune radiates his glory to us. Jesus says in John 12, Whoever sees me sees him who has sent me. Colossians 1:15 says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. John 1:18 says, "No one ever, has ever seen God. The only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known." First Corinthians says, for, "For God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." Jesus is the fundamental display of the glory of God. You want to know God's glory? You want to know who God is? You've got to know his son. Jesus is not changed here into something new. Rather, Jesus here reveals to us what has been true of him from eternity past. He's the glory of God. And lest we think, well, well, don't we see other places where heavenly beings blaze magnificently? And like verse 7, we see humans quake in fear before them when angels show up. Often people drop down, they're afraid. Yes, we do, but Christ is still different. Here, once again from the author of Hebrews. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name as he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God say, you are my son today, I've begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Or again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When people worship angels in the scriptures, they are corrected. When we see people worship Christ in the scriptures, they are commended. Jesus Shining forth like the sun helps us to see that. But there's further helps in this scene as well in revealing the divine nature of Christ. We see God affirm that the disciples were to listen to Christ. We're going to talk about this more specifically in just a minute. In the Old Testament... When someone would go up on the mountain and experience the glory of God, they interacted with the voice of God. In this scene, we see the disciples interact with Jesus, and when God the Father resonates around them, he tells them that Christ is the one that they are supposed to be listening to. If that declaration of God weren't enough, the appearance of Elijah and Moses alongside of Christ further highlights what he's come to do and his superiority. Not only do they stand as confirmation that Christ is the Messiah, Moses spoke of a prophet who was to come like him to whom we should listen. And the scripture said that Elijah must come and then the Messiah and his kingdom. So these two appearing say that the long-awaited prophet had arrived, the kingdom was finally coming, their confirmation of that. But they also appear to help the disciples see that even Moses and Elijah are superseded by Jesus. When Peter and the disciples see that Jesus is conversing with Elijah and Moses, and I don't know how they knew who they were, probably heard names used, I don't know, but they knew it was Elijah and Moses. It's, Peter says, in typical Peter fashion, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter's not commended for this, but he's corrected. Though Peter understood Jesus was the Messiah, he still placed him on the same plane as these other prophets. The fact that Peter wanted to make a tent wasn't necessarily the problem. Could have served practically. There were ceremonial aspects to it. It would have conveyed. The problem here is Peter is placing Moses and Elijah right alongside Jesus. The Father ensures that the point of this whole event is not missed. No, Peter, Jesus is not just another prophet. He is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah. He is greater than they are. This is my beloved Son. You listen to him. He is the great prophet to come. He is the Lord coming in power. We are told John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and the greatest Even greater than Moses. Yet John the Baptist said he was not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. One could come to know God without knowing about Moses or John the Baptist or any of the other prophets in the scriptures. We should know them. They help us know God. But we could know God without them. One cannot know God without knowing his son, Jesus Christ. Peter and the disciples had finally grasped that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior to come, but they still didn't grasp who he was. The divine, eternal Son of God, Jesus, is helping them see that. Jesus is helping us see that. This morning, in Donuts and Doctrine, another plug, we answered the question, how many persons are there in God? We chewed on this very thing. Great questions coming from even some of the younger kids around us. Jesus, the answer to that question, how many persons are there in God, is this. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is not just a human. He is also divine. He's not just a God, but he is the God of the universe. As with all tensions in scriptures, we tend to slide off one way or the other when we want to wrap our minds around something. Where the scripture teaches God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we tend to slide one or two ways rather than hold them together in tension. Where the scriptures teach that we're saved by grace alone, yet we are to pursue good works and righteousness, we tend to slide off one way or the other, cheap grace or works based faith. And where the scriptures teach that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we can tend to slide off one of the two directions. There have been heresies over the ages trying to cut out one or the other to make it easier to comprehend. We must never, even if in practice, unintentionally do this. We've got to see Jesus as utterly approachable and infinitely gracious towards us in his humanity We see Jesus as the one who calls us friend. We see Jesus as the perfect human who did what we could not. But moments like this remind us we cannot forget this Jesus is also the same God who dwells in unapproachable glory. He is eternally coexistent with the Father. Jesus has called us friend, but he is still Lord. We see this here. God says, listen to him. In this glorious display. But then, when it's all over, Moses and Elijah are gone, and the curtain of the glory is closed yet again, what does Jesus do? He touches them graciously, he tells them to rise and not to fear. That's the glorious truth about Jesus Christ Christ can relate to our humanity. And we can look to Christ as an example. Christ has made a way through his death and resurrection for us to be with God so that he can say to us, have no fear. Christ is the one and only intermediary for us with God, yet Christ is God himself. Jesus is the way that we are able to commune with God in intimacy. When we look to Jesus, we are able to peer into the sun, S-U-N, without going blind. I would say most of us likely don't struggle with over-reverence for Jesus and God. Our popular mood about Christ leans heavily into him being our friend, which is great. That's not wrong. He is our friend. That's why he came. He's gentle and lowly, but in the transfiguration, we are reminded we can't forget he's Lord and we have a reverence for our God, a holy reverence and awe. And as our Lord, We must listen to and obey him. And that's where I want to take us for our last bit this morning, but one can recognize all of this about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's the eternal son of God, yet one could still fail to trust him and to love him. To know God is to know Jesus, and to know Jesus is to follow him and listen to him. So first point, to know God, we must know Christ. Our second point, to love God, We must listen to Christ. One of the popular metaphors for God is a picture of thinkers and philosophers the world over standing around an elephant. The elephant being God. And describing it. To one they feel the leg and they say it's a tree. To another they grab the tail and they say that it's a snake. And so on. The popular refrain goes, all have a little piece of truth about God. And together they all... Get it right, I guess. Well, this analogy fails for many reasons. For one, it assumes that God, or the elephant, has not actually made himself known in any kind of comprehensible way. That's a presupposition, unprovable, and I would argue disproved by what God has revealed. Second, it misses the fact. That thinking one is touching a tree when it's touching an elephant's leg is not actually knowing or understanding the elephant at all. If I asked you if you knew my wife and you said you'd felt her hair, for one, I'd say, what? (laughs) (laughs) But if that's all you knew of her, I would say, no, you don't know my wife, at least not in the way she'd like to be known. To know my wife... You would ask her about her family. To know my wife, you'd know she loves laughter. To know my wife, you'd know that she keeps an excellent calendar and is one of the most thoughtful people you'll ever know. If you only felt her hair and assumed all she wanted in the world was a hairbrush, you would be wrong. In fact, she devotes little time to her hair. Such is us and our God. God is not what we make of him. God is someone to listen to to find out, to get to know Him, not someone of our own design and invention. And like all other rational beings, God wants to be known for who He is, not who we say He is. Allah is not just another name for the same God. Joseph Smith and Mormonism don't worship Jesus as the eternal Son of God along with the Father and the Holy Spirit Non-Messianic Judaism no longer has clung to the true God of the universe, but reject the Son, thus rejecting the truth about God himself. A God without Jesus is not God. We are accountable to know God in what he has revealed. He has revealed to us himself through his Son. To know God is to know his Son. And to know his Son is to listen to him. This is where the trickier part comes in for most of us, I think, especially for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. Peter thought he was loving God, thought he was loving Jesus, when he interjected and said Christ should not die. Yet Jesus said to Peter that he was speaking the things of Satan. When we approach Jesus Christ, we have to lay down all of our claims to authority. Jesus defines who God is. Jesus defines how God intends for us to live. Jesus defines for us the truth about reality. If Jesus declares it, we must listen. And we must listen in different ways. There there are two specifically I think we see here that I want to highlight. Listening to him about what we are to believe and listening to him about how we are to act and behave. For one, we listen to him in all matters of truth. That means that whatever Jesus and the scriptures say about God and the world, we must listen. Even as believers, this can be hard. It can be so hard for us as sinful people, steeped in a world full of sinful people, without the mind of God being led astray by the enemy, it's hard for us to see all the truth of God that we should. For some, the sovereignty of God can be a real challenge. For others, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross seems harsh. For others, the idea that we're all utterly corrupt at our core seems offensive. To some, what God has to say about gender or sexuality or marriage or relationships feels outdated and bigoted. The list could go on. When we approach anything in God's word, we must seek to understand what's being said But if we come to understand what it says and we just don't like it, we're the problem, not God's word. And rather than abandoning it or trying to twist it to be easier to swallow, we pray and we ask God that we would delight in it. That we would cherish his truth. And that we would be able to listen to him through his written and revealed word which is embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ. I've had to do this myself many, many times over. There are things about God, his plan or reality that that I once would have said, no, God, far be it from me that it should be that way. But I can say with gratitude to God that many things I once found hard or confusing, God's helped me to see the beauty and the goodness of his ways. We are always called to listen, even when it's hard to do so. That's what these disciples had to do. They didn't understand why the Messiah would have to suffer. That's not a hard thing for us to accept at this point. We're so steeped in the reality of the gospel. But for them, that was earth-shattering. Made no sense. They didn't understand how Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah if Jesus had already arrived and he was the Messiah. They're trying to piece all that together in their mind. Wait, I I don't understand that. They... They hadn't realized that John the Baptist represented Elijah and and that he had already come, and they're confused about that. They didn't get why Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't get why Jesus didn't push fasting like John's disciples. They were confused by all these things. They thought they knew what it should be, and this wasn't what it was. Yet nevertheless, despite how they felt, Jesus' words were the truth. We've got to do the same. We also have to listen to Jesus for direction in our lives, how we have to behave. There are many things God has revealed explicitly to us. The Sermon on the Mount was full of practical guidance on how a member of the kingdom of God ought to behave, what actions are pleasing to God. We cannot simply overlook these commands But we have to take them seriously and we pursue them with diligence. If the Lord tells us to do something in His Word, we must do it. And if He tells us not to do something in His Word, we must not do it. There will also be times through circumstance, prayer, conviction, and application of God's Word that He'll lead us to make some specific choices for our lives. They aren't always easy. I consider you guys the Schultzes. That's not an easy decision to make, going to dangerous places, dark places to share the gospel. The Lord may ask us at times to do something very difficult. Maybe last week as we talked about generous giving, you were pricked in conscience and you felt convicted to give towards something in a way you never have before. I remember before Happy and I got married, and I share this not in pride because this certainly is not the norm, though I wish it were in my life. But as an example, before we got married, I heard a message on generous giving and I was convicted, unavoidably convicted. I I couldn't get away from the thought as much as I wanted to and I felt the Lord was laying on my heart that some of the money that we had set aside for our honeymoon needed to go towards a friend who was in a tough financial spot. That was hard to accept. I'm glad I obeyed, but it was hard. Maybe the Lord's calling you to do a different kind of work for his purposes. But doing so would mean a cut and pay. Maybe the Lord's convicted you to expose some sin in your life, but you're worried about the repercussions. Perhaps he's calling you to speak about Christ to your unbelieving friends or neighbors, even if it means you might be rejected by them. Whatever it is, we are called to follow, to trust him. Jesus says, if we love him, we will keep his commands. He's given us explicit commands, and at times, through his leading in the Holy Spirit, he'll call us to things. If we reject firm conviction or clear command, in both cases, we betray Christ. Jesus told these disciples that they were going to suffer for his sake. He told them that if they were going to follow him, they needed to take up their cross daily. Would they listen to this? Jesus is helping them here by displaying his glory, helping them to have a firm foundation of trust. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one we look to to know God. He's the one we love and obey, and this is for our good. We may have ways that seem right in our own eyes, but I guarantee you they do not produce the life, the joy, the righteousness, the fruitfulness that comes from listening to and following Jesus. Church, we need to be the most humble people. And in our pursuit of God, we must humble ourselves, take him at his word, even if we don't understand, and follow him where he's leading. Is there something right now you're resisting in God's word? The truth you don't want to believe or accept. Is there something he's calling you to and you're afraid to follow? Let this moment of transfiguration be a reminder to you of just who it is that's speaking to you. He's worthy. He is worthy of our praise and our trust. And if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, know this. These things really happened. Later in his second epistle, Peter writes about this very moment, and about this experience, and he uses it to help people accept the truth. Jesus didn't have some private mountaintop experience. He in many ways revealed himself to be the transcendent Son of God to hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses. And in his resurrection, he did the same. And this radiantly glorious Son of God offers you now relationship with God if you repent of your sin and trust in Him. You can't approach God without the forgiveness of Christ. But when you look to Christ for forgiveness, you will experience God Himself and be invited into His very glory. Church, as we go from here today, let's go remembering who it is we worship, who we're singing about. We can sing songs on a Sunday and things just start to turn into words. We say Jesus' name, we say Christ, we say Lord, we say God, and at times they can just be words flowing through our minds. Let's fight to soak in the glory of what these words mean. Let's remember what Jesus has done for us and let's follow him wherever he leads. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you that you have given us so many helps for our weak and feeble minds to embrace you to embrace your Son. And I just pray this morning that we would embrace your Son as the glorious Savior, transcendent one, eternal Son of God. Thank you for this moment that you gave to James and Peter and John. Thank you that they shared it through the conviction of your Spirit with all of us. I pray that we would embrace this moment and see Jesus in the glorious truth that he is. And Father, wrapped up in that, that we could see the two things at play, and our Lord, Jesus, thank you that you are a friend. Thank you that you touch our shoulders and say, don't be afraid. But thank you that you are Lord. Help us, Father, to kneel and bend our knee to you and your son and the movement of your spirit. Help us to be obedient people who also reflect, who shine like the moon, who reflect the sun of your the light of the sun. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.